Hey, First Readers. Your hosts are taking a few weeks off this summer to work on other projects, so we're bringing you a series from the First Reading Vault, our walk through the Genesis lectionary texts from back in 2020. There are a few pandemic references in here because, well, that's what was happening in 2020, but there are also some real gems in here to help with your preaching this time through Year A in the RCL. So enjoy the episode, and we'll see you again with new content later in the summer. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all of God's creatures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. This week, we're looking at Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34, which is scheduled in the lectionary for July 12th, the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. And oh my gosh, what a story here, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Yes, yes. So, uh, Rachel, you've you've got some prep that you've done for us here, and I'd love to hear what you've got planned. So, um, but maybe we should start with a little bit of context, right? Uh we mentioned last week that this story kind of opens up um, the Isaac and Rebecca section of Genesis. So is there anything from the previous literary context that we should have in mind as we jump into this section of Genesis? Well, it's kind of funny that you'd ask that because the the first two verses almost seem to start it off as like this brand new story, kind of almost like a clean slate. And mm-hmm. uh, listeners, I'm going to not go down the road that so many biblical scholars love to go down and say, well, which original story then was this a part of and how was it related to the stories that came before? We're going to pause that. Just know that there's lots of uh, discussion around that. But I just want you to note that it's really interesting because it starts in verse 19. This is the story of Isaac, son of Abraham. Uh, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as his wife. And everything we've done over the past few months should let you know there's a whole heck of a lot more that happened between Isaac's birth and his (laughs) marriage. And and we actually do see some of those past themes resurface in the story. Mm-hmm. Like I could give you one right away. The barrenness that's here, right? Yeah. Just, just like Sarah had been barren and couldn't have children. Now uh, Rebecca is barren and she can't have children. What's what's going on with that? Like, why is it that... Especially why is it that the women are always said to be barren? Where are the guys here? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, so complicated issue. Um, This is these are questions of um, infertility versus impotence Um, in the Bible and in the ancient Near Eastern context. It made a distinction between infertility, which was seen as a female problem and impotence, which was seen as a male problem. All of that to say they didn't always just blame the women. They were seen as issues on both kind of the the male reproductive side and the female reproductive side. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, the Bible always seems to talk about the women as the ones who are the problem. And that can rub us the wrong way as modern listeners. Um, so a couple ways to understand that. Um, first, this was definitely a male-dominated culture texts that were most likely written by men, most likely for men. So it's certainly possible that one of the aspects going on here is that women are blamed so that men can kind of save face. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, 
This is also a strange sort of inclusive move on the part of the storytellers. Uh, if you if you kind of go with me, one of the big promises to Abraham and Sarah was for children. Like you talked about last weekend, that, that promise really dominates the Abraham and Sarah narrative. Um, and so having these stories of the wives who are barren actually in a backwards way invites them into a story which otherwise would have just been dominated by the patriarchs. It would have just been about the men. Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it sort of becomes kind of a, a literary theme or a literary trope. You've got Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Rachel. Uh, they all struggle to give birth. Yes, exactly. Uh, and for Isaac and Rebecca, the whole process is quite literally a struggle. Mm -hmm, right. um, here, so here in verse 22, the NRSV says, the children struggle together within Rebecca. And so much so that she has to go to God just to ask what in the world is going on down there. And oh my <laughs> gosh, anybody who's been pregnant knows that feeling of wanting to grab the deity by the ear, pull them down to earth and be like, what is happening in my stomach right now? <laughs> So the Hebrew actually reflects this really nicely, too. Um, in the Hebrew word that it talks about when it describes the two babies wrestling in Rebecca's stomach is ratzatz, which actually means to crush or oppress. Um, and the form of the verb for those of us who are linguist geeks is called reflexive, which basically just means you should add the words themselves or each other to whatever action is being described. So crushed or oppressed each other in her middle. So if you can imagine for our listeners out there what that might feel like, um, I can't imagine for anybody who's probably had twins knows something what that feels like. But there's a specific reason that Jacob and Esau are described as crushing each other or oppressing each other in Rebecca's womb. And that, of course, is because that theme describes their entire relationship. Um, when, when they're born, Jacob comes out gripping Esau's heel. So she names him Yaakov, which means something like heel grabber. And that was an idiom in Hebrew for somebody who circumvents or overreaches. Which seems to fit his character for the rest of his life, right? Exactly, exactly. Jacob was a heel grabber from birth until death. And uh, we get a good sense of that in this second part of the text that's coming up. Um, so just to give a little bit of background, you know, Jacob is a good self-quarantiner. He, <laughs> he stays in the tents while Esau goes out and about in the fields. Um, Jacob was a mama's boy. The, the tent was the realm of women in the Hebrew Bible. And Esau was like a man's man. He was hairy and scary and out in the fields all the time. Uh, and their parents preferred one over the other. So you can kind of pause on that moment because it's one of those lines in the Bible that's quick, but it's very pregnant with meaning. You know, if you can, as a, as a uh, pastor, if you can sort of hover over that and help your people imagine what that might've been like for each kid growing up, mm -hmm. um, you know, and what kind of abuse Esau might have put Jacob through if he was sort of effeminate as the text suggests. That leads us straight into the abuse that Jacob does put Esau through in this text. So you've got kind of this pregnant background and then this dramatic moment where it all sort of comes out onto the table. Uh -huh. So there's a couple different ways that we can think about this section about food and birthright. And, um, how you interpret that moment between Jacob and Esau will directly lead to what kind of sermon you want to preach. So, 
if we take this moment seriously, if we take Esau seriously, he thinks he's dying. He thinks that things are so serious that he is about to keel over. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Hebrew word that the NRSV translates as famished, ayeth, is often used in the Bible for soldiers who are on the brink of hunger exhaustion, like they're at a dangerous point in their body. Um, So Esau could have been seriously in need of food. And and what does Jacob do, Tim? He helps him out right away. Yeah, right. Like a good (laughs) brother would, right? Uh uh Now he bargains. His brother is at the point of a dangerous bodily experience and he bargains with him. Mm -hmm. He takes advantage of the moment. Yeah, exactly. And and it's often seen as kind of a shrewd move, like he was sort of crafty. But just think about the more awful overtones. Your brother is desperately needed. It's something that you can easily give and you refuse it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very soap opera-ish. It is. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's sort of like those um, Latin American soap operas that you come on and if you don't speak Spanish, you can't understand anything. But you know by the gestures that something very dramatic is about to happen. Yes, this is very much like a telenovela. Exactly. That's the name of it. What what dramatic tension is in this story? So how would how would you preach it? Do you have any preaching tips or pitfalls for us? Yeah. Okay. So for sermon angles, I mentioned there were two ways that I saw to kind of preach this, depending on how you interpret that moment that happens between Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. Um, the the first one is this could be read as a story about what we are willing to do against those who hurt us, mm. against those with whom we struggle all our lives. It's, it's kind of a come to Jesus story in that way. Um, we are capable of awful things. We are capable of seeing someone in desperate pain and desperate dire need right in front of us and of somehow not seeing that need and that pain because how concerned we are with our own pain. Um, so a sermon about what we are capable of to those who hurt us and what God offers us instead of that desire to hurt that could be relevant, especially in an election year. Oh yeah. (laughs) So that's one angle. The other angle I would take would shift the way we interpret that moment between Jacob and Esau. Instead of understanding Esau's need as so extremely dire, we could also understand it the way it traditionally has been, which is that he's just really kind of foolish. Like he's got a birthright from God. He has a gift of the promises and blessings of the divine deity of Israel, and he bargains it away for some stew. I mean, there is absolutely that way to read this text as well. And that might actually be a better sermon to sort of flip the narrative on Esau and Jacob for marginalized communities who are oppressed by white systems or systems of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. In that scenario, I'd flip the script and I'd go with the less generous reading of Esau, because in that light, Jacob does some amazing leveraging of power in a way that is remarkable, given the obviously greater force that Esau presents to him. So two different possible readings of this text that will depend on your community and what you see as your community's needs. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the the sort of trickstery nature of Jacob is never really condemned in the text. I mean, we we sort of come down a little harder on that than the ancient people who would have first come across these stories do. I think so. I I think so. I, I do think at uh, the same time, what's so fascinating about the Jacob character, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is he mm-hmm. becomes his own condemner. You know, he becomes his own 
judge in a way that he kind of looks back at everything he did in his life and he offers his own sort of sentence on it. So you kind of have to wait to see how it turns out with Jacob, which is a fabulous reason, dear listeners, to keep listening. (laughs) Right. There's a series here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Anything else, Rachel? Did you have any pitfalls or anything else? Uh, The one thing, the one other pitfall I wanted to mention is if you are talking about infertility and impotence, um, I'd like you to do something that Tim did earlier when, when you were talking about it, Tim. You talked about the couples as struggling to conceive, Abraham Mm -hmm. and Sarah, Rebecca and Isaac, Rachel and Jacob. And I think that does two things. First of all, for us who are modern listeners, that eases the blame on the women that has been very traditional in this story. Um, And second of all, in our modern society, I think that sometimes it's the dads who actually get left out of the pregnancy and birthing process. Or you could also just say the non-pregnant partner, whatever gender they might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't know what your experience was of Elizabeth being pregnant, but when I was pregnant and we would go to the doctor's appointments, Tim would keep track of the number of people who addressed him throughout the course of those appointments Um, because we could go an entire appointment without anybody saying a word to him. He was just treated as unnecessary to the entire process. Um, And biologically, at that point, I was definitely doing the heavy lifting. (laughs) But if we have a concept of wanting parents to be partners in the process, then we need to treat both parents, the pregnant and the non-pregnant one, as partners in this process. And I think there's a way we could address that even in preaching on this story. Definitely. I think that's that's good advice. Good yeah. advice. Well, all right. So that gives us a couple approaches into this text, uh, a couple different angles to preach it. So thanks a lot for putting that together for us, Rachel. Absolutely. All right, friends, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. As a reminder, uh, everything, all of our past episodes and everything that we're doing is on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. There's a link to subscribe there, or you can find us on iTunes or all the good places to get podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Happy preaching.